please open in your scriptures to 1 Thessalonians, which is found in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians. While you do, I want to introduce a, a book I've been reading and will continue to read. I, I've just begun it. I've gotten so much out of it already. I'm uh, sharing with another uh, individual in the church this week uh, from this. Uh, Thomas Kidd, who is a scholar, uh, historical scholar, um, and um, I believe uh, is um, shares a distinguished chair, whatever that means, uh, in at Baylor University. Uh, he's evangelical, he's Baptist, um, has written um, a book recently uh, called The Great Awakening, The Roots of uh, evangelical Christianity in uh, colonial America. It looks like this. Uh, Thomas Kidd's The Great Awakening. Not many, if any, authors besides Dr. Kidd are writing about uh, The Great Awakening of the uh, early 1700s. Uh, but he is, and he's doing it in a way that's both uh, avoids, if this has been your experience with history, avoids uh, so much detail that uh, an, an average reader, as I am, just loses focus, but also avoids the error that sometimes Christian historians are guilty of, uh, diminishing the warts, minimizing the faults of the people they're covering um, because in order to honor them, but, but not addressing, really. This is a sinner used by God mightily uh, to... Um, Bring glory to Christ, the Savior to sinners. So he seems to walk that balance carefully, which I, I respect, and it's harder, I know, than I realize to do. I've read many Christian biographies, and I've found that that balance is difficult. Too much detail, so it's really scholarly and not accessible, or the person they're describing didn't exist, really, uh, because um, they're just so faultless that um, it really, I think... Uh, begs the question, um, is the gospel good news for sinners? So uh, he does well, and I highly recommend him. He's not a perfect writer. No perfect writer is, but I think you'll find it instructive. And so the first story I'm going to share after we read the scripture is from Dr. Kidd's book on the Great Awakening. I think it will instruct us. It testifies to God's grace. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture together from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Lord, thank you for your word and for this series on awakening. We are grateful that we can not only consider this spiritual reality from the pages of Scripture and see again and again and again and again how the God of the Bible is the God of awakenings and that you delight, Lord, to bring people into your kingdom through revealing Christ to them. And you delight as well to revive those who are in your kingdom, to revive in them their first love of Christ, that he would have no rival but their passions and priorities would be found in him. I pray you do that for me, and I pray you do that for your listeners today. And I pray more than my words, Lord, Spirit of God, you would do what you do best. Cause the brightness of your illuminating grace to shine from the pages of scripture 
into our hearts that we might see Jesus more clearly today. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 1. I'll begin reading in verse 1 through the, through the first 10 verses, but I'm going to concentrate our attention on verses 4, 6, 9, and 10. And as we go through the message, I'll highlight those again. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for, our, for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living. Forgive me. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I have a cold, and my cold is stubbornly resisting cold medicines, cough drops, and the prayers of God's people. So (coughs) we'll do the best we can. Jonathan Edwards was 20-something when he joined his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, as a pastor in Northampton in the 1720s, Northampton, Massachusetts. Shortly after he joined him, Solomon Stoddard passed away, and so Jonathan Edwards, the young pastor, served alone at that small church in Northampton, Massachusetts. And because he was both a called man and convinced of his calling, he served faithfully for those first initial years, five to six years, with little little indication that the Lord was attending his shepherding or his teaching or his preaching. We have to remember in those days, Jim reminded me of this last week after the sermon, it was so helpful, that in those days, if you were a citizen in Northampton, you were required to go to church. The congregational church in Massachusetts was what we call an established church by law. Jonathan's salary was paid for by tax dollars. It's a different day, isn't it? 
So if you wanted to be a citizen, you went to church in Northampton. You know, and yet your pastor was paid for by U.S. tax dollars. And that to not go to church was just unthinkable. So church attendance was high, even for a small congregation in Northampton. But fruit in terms of faith in Christ seemed missing by many. And so he described his congregants in a word that we use today as Christians in name only. They attended church. They confessed to believe in Christ. They, they said the Bible was the word of God. But their, their lives, their hearts, their motivations, their priorities, their, their hope did not seem very different from people that you wouldn't expect to find in church. People in Northampton, even though they knew they were supposed to be there, there were certain ones that didn't go to church. And Edwards was concerned. He was particularly concerned with the youth, the teenagers of the families who attended his church because immediately following the service, apparently, Edwards writes about this, they would go party. I think the expression he used was so wild oats. I have no idea what that means for a teenager. Is that like eat Wheaties or, uh, you know. Church would end, the youth would disappear, and an hour later they would be sowing wild oats, partying in the town common and in the homes of some of his members, just as if they hadn't been in church at all. Unlike George Whitfield, who we mentioned last week, Edwards had no theatrical background. When he spoke, he spoke very monotone, according to those who listened to him. He read his manuscript, making little visible contact with his audience. His personality came across as somewhat reserved, according to witnesses, very intellectual, even austere, which just is a fancy word to say, hard. And God came to church. Before Whitfield showed up, God came to that church. He visited it. And now, for the first time in the history in Edwards, people were weeping as he read his manuscript. Youth, now after the meeting, no longer were going to sow their wild oats, but were gathering in homes to read the Bible, to enjoy fellowship as Christians, talk about what they were learning, be discipled. And Jonathan Edwards was flabbergasted. It was a complete surprise to him, unexpected. In fact, due to his discouragement, at first he was disbelieving. But as he met with both 
adults who were seemingly being converted for the first time under the preaching of the word and the gathering of, of them in church and their children bearing evidence of repentance for their sin and turning to Christ and, and saying, you know, through their prayers and actions, I want Christ to be my Lord. He wrote a little book called A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God to record what God was doing and also to encourage other pastors like him, both in New England, but also in England and other places where the book would travel, that you can prepare for an awakening. You can prepare your people and you can prepare as pastors for an awakening. God has to do it. Only God can work a conversion. But you can prepare for an awakening. And in preparing for it, put our hope in the God who delights to awaken his church. So if you want to read more about that awakening, there's a delightful article on the Desiring God website by Douglas Sweeney, another scholar who wrote an accessible way, called Revive Us. Revive Us, O Lord. And it recounts the Northampton revival. Whitfield did show up later. Whitfield preached both in Northampton, the church building, and also in the fields. And people responded again and wept. And, um, but in some ways, the revival had already begun, which makes the point, right? Which is my main point, that during an awakening, the gospel brings life to the church transforming our passion for God today and our hope for tomorrow. It was the gospel and the scriptures that herald the gospel that brought life to that little congregation in Northampton, which then transformed the community through the rapid conversion of their youth and families and singles, and then seemed to have wings as it uh, went other places uh, throughout the world. It transforms our passion for God today and our hope for tomorrow. And I think we find in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians a faithful narrative of a surprising work of God in the New Testament, to use Edward's title. And Paul, in his opening words, his prayer, details in his praying for the Thessalonians the surprising, supernatural, sovereign, spirit-endowed work of God through the gospel amongst the Thessalonians who were not required to go to church. In fact, they were discipled in a completely different tradition, what we would call paganism. And yet, through the hearing of the message, God moved on them. They became a church, and he testifies to the work of awakening in their hearts. Why is this important to us? Well, let me, let me offer you five reasons. First, if you're a parent, as I am still a parent, and of course our parenting never ends, it just it changes with the age of the, the person in front of us. One of my grown adult children is watching this morning. You and I need wisdom. Another way to say that is you and I 
never stop preparing for the awakening of our children. We never stop. There's things we should be doing and things we can do. Whether they are in your estimate, ultimately it matters ultimately to God, are they, are they a Christian? Are they regenerate, born again? Or are they, are they born again, regenerate, but they're sleepy right now? They're sluggish. They've, they've maybe lost their first love or their first love is diminished. There's things you and I can do. And so as a parent, we want to be able to discern what are the indicators and signs of the Spirit's awakening in their lives. And so prepare, being prepared for that, we can do that. Secondly, one of the hallmarks of an awakened church is that there are testimonies of God's activity amongst God's people. And one of the ways we can give praise to God for his activity and praise to God for its awakening is when we share those testimonies. I remember as a single adult, uh, a group of single men and a group of single women were invited to a Saturday morning prayer meeting. And, you know, single men and women, they like to stay up late, even if you're Christian on a Friday night. And so going to an eight o'clock prayer meeting is like making your bed in the morning. It's just not something you want to do right away. There's other things that take the priority. But we went. I remember, if I remember this, I must have been asleep and then awakened. And we stumbled into that prayer meeting, and there was one of the pastors, and there was this one man there that was rather barrel-chested and seemed unusually caffeinated, and he began to pray, and he began to pray, and he began to pray, and we became convicted. We were, we were smoked, and I don't even remember what he prayed But as he prayed, we were just aware of the presence of God and things in our heart. And we're there, we're Christians, we're we're servants in the church. We're we're singles in the church. We're like we're like the first responders in the church. We're and we start getting down on our knees. And it was just what happened, and that group that met that Saturday continued to meet on Fridays and go to that prayer meeting. For months. Why? God awakened us. Youth camp, two young teens had grown up in the church. They both purported to be believers. Their pastors said they were believers, which doesn't mean the pastors are all knowing. Their leaders at the youth camp. And someone gets a word of encouragement for them on the last night of youth camp. Pulls him aside. This guy was like a football coach too, which impressed these two young men. One was my son. Josh pulls him over and said, while we were singing and praying, the Lord brought you to mine. So I can see my little Will. He's now a big Will. My big Will looking up at Big Josh, and his buddy Nate looking up at Big Josh. And they said, what did you say? 
And he asked him, do you both like football? I know you don't play. You play soccer. But do you like, like football? Oh, we love football. The Lord told me that although you're starting linemen on his football team, you're off on the sidelines. You're standing on the sidelines. You've taken yourself out of the game. And he says to you in youth camp, when you go to college, I'll never forget these words. Every down in, every down you're in. And Josh, you know, big Josh, I mean, he could beat me up. I was a tennis player. Big Josh gets down that three-point stance, and he says, get down here with me. And he does the three-point stance. He looks at both the eyes and says, you're going to college. The Lord says to you, every down in. My son went to college, and those words were ringing in his ear. And he did what many Christian youth don't do when they go to college, Christian school or secular school. He devoted himself to those college groups. He was inseparable from those college ministries. He felt like his very faith in God. He had been awakened. The other boy, not so much. I'm not even sure he's walking with the Lord today. Oh, he's a great kid, successful in his career. I could come up with more. My point is, is that when there's awakenings, it's always visible. And therefore, there's testimonies. And so as we consider the testimony of Paul from 1 Thessalonians, my appeal to you is as we're praying for awakenings and we're preparing for awakenings, let's start sharing, even if they're small, testimonies of God's awakening work. Because we serve a God of awakening, Psalm 85, that's his heart. The sending of Christ was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prayer in Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, rend the heavens and come down. And Mark points that out. Jesus is, the arrival of Jesus is the agent of awakening. <coughs> and now in 1 Thessalonians, we have a gospel <coughs> awakened church. Verse 2. The first sign or mark of a gospel awakened church is that it is a supernatural work of God. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because, verse 5, our word came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The Thessalonians that Paul is writing to are an awakened church because an awakened church is a supernatural work of God. God did it, amen? There's things that they did perhaps to prepare themselves for it. They listened to Paul, just like a child would listen to you if you're being raised in a Christian home or a, 
or a young adult, you're sharing with them spiritual truth, spiritual concerns, maybe even sharing the gospel with them. Again, there's things that they did, but as Edward said in his faithful narrative and as Paul points out in his prayer to the Thessalonians, where Edwards is drawing it perhaps, that where there is an awakened church is because God has done something that you and I can't do. Amen? And therefore, we must pray. Pray. Pray to prepare for an awakening. Because that's what Paul's doing. He's praying for a church that's already awakened. That they would be awakened still more. Certainly their belief in the truth is crucial and non-negotiable. Their repentance from sin, as they talk about in verse 9, as they turn from idols, is an evidence that their heart's been changed. But this letter, if nothing else, says that we need God to do something that the worship team can't do for us. As good as they are, and they are good. That good preaching can't do for us. And there are some great preachers in our world today. Or faithful preachers can't do for us. Or reading the Bible, as important that is, can't do for us. We need God to supernaturally work in our hearts. That is the mark of an awakened church. In fact, it's not too far stretched to say that you're here and I'm here, and even some, in some cases, building, you could argue, is here because God supernaturally awakened someone or a group of people when you were dead in your sins and told you about Jesus. Which brings me to my second point. An awakened church always experiences a change in direction. Verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he chose you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you became imitators of us in the Lord. They were discipled in the way of Christ. They were discipled in the teachings of Christ. They were discipled in the way and teachings of Christ, and then they were given a model in the Apostle Paul and Timothy, who probably brought a report to Paul when this letter was written, and therefore he wrote back to them. And so Silvanus, they had imitators or models that they could, they could say, this is what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. And to simplify it down to a simple mark is that when God awakens a church, when God awakens a church and brings life to the church, transforming our passion for God today, it normally results in a change of direction. It normally results in a change of direction. If we didn't need a course correction, he probably wouldn't need to send the awakening in the first place. But because he's gracious and he's faithful, he sends the awakening so that we can have a change in direction and say of the Lord, the gospel brought life to my soul today. I think I've shared this with you, but when 
when we left our former association, I hated some of those men. I felt I had been betrayed, taken advantage of, used for my loyalty. And I'm a sinner, so I'm sure those are all not full, but I was angry. And it was deep. And of course, I know some of you have disappointing relationships in your history. Maybe not denominational, and there's anger. There's bitterness. And on a sunny day where the Lord's speaking particularly clearly, like it was on Easter Sunday, and I'm driving to church, and I'm going to celebrate the resurrection, and we're going to be communion, I got a tie on. The Lord convicts me on 95 and says, you hate this pastor. And I just burst into tears. I probably should have pulled over. Probably accelerated. I was smitten. And I have a choice in that moment. I hear say, you know what? That's just too much coffee. The music is on too loud. It's Easter Sunday. Or I can say, oh, God, I need to repent, don't I? If you're a Christian and you hate someone, the Lord is calling you to repent. But if you're like me, you need supernatural grace to do that. I'm a stubborn man. I feel right in the wrongs I've suffered. I can justify my hate. And, that, and that's not just because I'm a Philadelphian. It's because I'm a sinner. And so when God awakened my heart, I repented and began a process of repentance, a new change. So now I pray for these chuckleheads. I pray for them. I can visit their churches and not carry in my heart some bitter and repent of the hypocrisy that a Christian like me must have to think that I can love Jesus and be forgiven of my sins and carry in my bosom hatred for a fellow sinner. Yes. Yes, Lord. And I'm still bearing fruit by your grace. It always results. So if your son or daughter saying, I'm a Christian, ask them to explain to you in words that make sense to you. They wouldn't necessarily make sense to me. How is God creating a change in direction? Where is God in little Bauer's soul creating a change in direction through a relationship with Christ? I mean, with our kids, it, it, it wasn't very profound. It was just, you don't like your sibling. You really don't like your sibling. He or she doesn't even have to take your toy to show that you really don't like your sibling. If you're a Christian, God's going to give you the ability to tolerate your sibling and then actually imagine this. Be respectful a little bit more to your sibling. And what's this? You shared your toy with your sibling? Awakening. This could be fruit of the new birth. Now, I make fun of it, but if I were to reduce conversion to praying a prayer 
and attending church and being nice to mommy and daddy, I mean, those are all wonderful earmarks, but for my kids, it needed to be something deeper because being the kids of pastors, they didn't have a choice in that. They were, in a sense, on the payroll to do that. But how they behaved in their home when nobody's watching, that takes an awakening, doesn't it? And by God's grace, he delights to do that. Because in the awakened church, third point has a change in affections. That's what Edwards call our, our passions. I want to tell you, there's a lot of passionate Eagles fans in South Philadelphia right now. I don't think they went to bed last night. My phone is lit up with a bunch of crazy talk about what happened yesterday at the game. But as important as that win was, I can say with all integrity, and I love when Philadelphia teams win. You know that. This is so much more important. But I didn't learn that. I wasn't taught that. I didn't download a song on my Apple iTunes player that said that. No, the song that we memorized, Amazing Grace, I encountered that when I was awakened. When Perry and Phil preached that message in 1981 to a room full of young people, pastors of a church plant there in the western suburbs of Philadelphia, they didn't know who I was. And they certainly would have been surprised that what I heard, because I was such a poor listener, went back with me to my, my little bedroom there on Watch Hill Road, and there before my two bunk beds, Christ was waiting for me, and I was convicted of my sins, and I knew that I was, I was ripe for hell in my sins because of it. It's as if eternity for the first time, the first time was now opening before me, and I realized I am lost, and the principal indicator of my damnation was I hated my mom and dad because they simply tried to restrain me and gave me rules and took away the car and did, did things that parents are supposed to do. And as I surrendered to Christ, I mean, I didn't bow down to anything in high school. As I, as I got on my knees with tears, surrendered to Christ, the first conviction that came to mind was the next morning, go tell your mom and dad and ask them to forgive you. I had new affections. I loved my mom and dad for the first time. They were freaked out because they thought, are you a born-again Christian? We've heard about these people. They were Presbyterians. They, I like the Presbyterians, but they didn't have a category. I said, I don't know what I am, but I do know this. I was last night aware of Jesus Christ who died for my sins, and one of my sins that I'm most aware of Paul talks about in Romans 1, I hated you too. Please forgive me. And I love Jesus for it. He did it. I'll call my mom later today, not because I'm a good son, 
because God gave me a new affection to honor my parents. And my mom lets me know when I don't call her to. And then lastly, an awakened church, and I finish with this, experiences a change in anticipation. Did you see in verse 10, after he tells them that, that in their conversion due to Christ's awakening through the message of the gospel, they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. We're not told which idols. We can imagine which idols there in, in Greece at that time. But they turned from serving those idols in their culture to serving the, the true and living God. It says they wait for his son from heaven whom God raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. In other words, because they're awakened, an awakened church keeps looking up, not down, which is what I heard during our prophetic encouragement this morning. An awakened church keeps looking up, not down. Because Christ has promised to return, and while we wait, we have hope. We have hope in him. He hasn't left us here. He is the God of the great awakening. But while we look up and wait, we pray, oh Lord, we pray. We pray, send your awakening grace now. So I conclude with this. Jim, this is under how can we prepare for an awakening. These are my closing thoughts and closing really thoughts for the series. How can we prepare for an awakening as we look up, as we put our hope in him and not ourselves, we put our hope in him and not even the church, as we put our hope in him and his word and not any human instrumentality. We pray. Friends, have you seen the desperate need of prayer for this church and the church in our culture today. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, and I know some of you know whom he is, that one of the indicators, one of the signs of God's beginning awakening is the church starts praying again like they're desperate for it. We preach God's word and its promises of revival. That's what we've been doing. We cannot trigger the Spirit's downpour, writes Ray Ortland, but we should always abound in hope for we live in the age of the Spirit. At any time, in any measure, upon any church, the sovereign Lord is able to shed the showers of his Spirit. That was Edward's experience in Northampton. That was Whitfield's experience in the 500 or so messages he gave on this continent as he traveled. And that can be our experience as we wait. We preach God's word. We cling to the promises of rival. And we urgently proclaim the reality of, the reality of eternity to all. I love when I pray with people before the service because someone will inevitably pray that what's at stake in the message and what's at stake in the ministry of the church is that for God to be an awakening, people need to be snapped out of their stupor that this is it and that there's an eternal reality and through Christ we are ushered into heaven but without him we are sentenced to hell and his just condemnation. 
if you have a diminishing doctrine of hell and a diminishing doctrine of heaven, you need an awakening, and so do I. Because scripture speaks of it all the time. Jesus in all of his parables, all of his parables, talked about the reality of eternity. Fourth, we turn from our sin as we turn to Christ. Proverbs 28 gives us a precious promise. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy, new mercies. As the awakening begins and, he, and the spirit who is the author and architect of it illuminates our hearts, my heart, we know that he does so in order that we would confess and receive new mercy and be restored, renewed in our relationship with him. And lastly, while we wait and while we are expectant, we're not putting our hope in revival. Amen? We're not putting our hope in awakening. Although awakening is precious to consider, we're putting our hope in Christ. And Lord, as we conclude this series, that's what we do. We say again as the worship team returns that although, Lord, we desire you to revive us and we desire you to awaken our land, we are not putting our hope in either awakening or revival. We are putting our hope in you, we are looking up. You have promised to return, and until that blessed day occurs, Lord, you have promised in surprising, supernatural, sovereign, but nonetheless, Lord, spirit-endowed ways, send awakenings and revivals. Lord, we pray that, we pray that the best years of gospel ministry for this church and every church that we can think of that comes into our mind near and far would be in front of them because, Lord, you have harnessed, you have harnessed the church to pray for gospel revival and awakening. And you have compelled pastors and teachers to teach on the reality of eternity, heaven and hell, and the promises scripture gives, Lord, to both. And Lord, ultimately, because we're your people and we belong to you, that Lord, our first love would not grow cold. Our, our first love would not diminish, but by your grace and through your awakening presence, Lord, our love for you together would only deepen would only grow more. Revive us, O Lord, we pray with the psalmist, that Christ might be glorious in our day. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand.